Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, and thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. All right, hey folks, thanks for joining us. Once again, my name is Dwayne France. I am the host of Headspace and Timing. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, the guests we have here today. Uh, Tim Weineke and I have known each other for, well, going on about a year, I guess, or maybe uh, a little bit less. Uh, and, uh, and Tim is a fellow mental health counselor and a fellow veteran, so there are more than one of us in the world. Uh, and so Tim is uh, practicing a little north of me in Colorado, and he graciously allowed us to to kind of talk to him and pick his brain. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So, um, how about you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, um, sort of your military history, and, and kind of what you're doing now? Sure. So, I joined up with the Air Force in 2007, uh, primarily doing intelligence work overseas, uh, never deployed, not a combat vet. Um, I didn't really like that work with the NSA. It's all big computer screens, puzzle pieces that you never really get to identify or know what's going on. Uh, and I really missed being around people, right? Windowless buildings, looking at computer programs. Didn't really speak to me, so I volunteered for every additional duty I could find. And during that time, I found myself working with uh, victims' advocates. Uh, providing care for military sexual trauma survivors. And through that, the Air Force, right around 2009, was launching its bystander program. And I'm sure we all remember those trainings with a little bit of hatred, but I was the primary trainer for one of them and and trained all of uh, Northern England and most of the reserve units out of Buckley before I punched. And what I figured out is as proud of the work and the service I was working with the NSA and doing the intelligence work, uh, I needed a lot more tangible impact in anything I did. So I punched out, uh, went to grad school, 
kept doing some victim advocacy and uh, then found myself running a mentorship program at CU and getting back to the vets and helping folks get settled in. So that's kind of my journey through the service and how it got me here. Yeah, so you kind of uh, eased into the mental health field. Uh, did you know before you got out of the Air Force that, that you were, were looking at, at mental health to be a counselor? No, I knew, so <laughs> I think like most of us, my, my plans went rather poorly, right? Uh, I got out and was a little bit burnt out doing the direct advocacy work. Uh, just like the civilian systems, that there's not a lot of difference, but there isn't a lot of justice for survivors. Uh, and the military courts and civilian courts both have those problems, but I really liked the prevention work. I like talking to guys. Uh, I like getting people mobilized and trying to make some real changes for folks. And I was told uh, by two whole people that I did all the research with that there would probably be work and education around that, and that's not the case. If you go into advocacy work, you're going to be doing it all. And so I think I did like most of us do. I got out for six months, hung out on employment, and sat on a couch wondering what the hell I was going to do. And uh, about six months into that, I figured out that mental health was where to go. There was a really good graduate program at CU here in Colorado, and that was that. So you had already had your bachelor's uh, while you were on active duty? Yeah, I, uh, I joined up really late. I was 28 years old. I had a bachelor's in sociology with a very low GPA. Uh, and the year that I graduated with my bachelor's in sociology, that was the most handed out degree across the country. <laughs> and then I moved back to Denver in 2005, right at the housing crisis and job market crunch. And Denver had more college degrees per capita than anywhere else in the country. And I had no work experience and uh, did a bunch of temp work, man. When I joined the military, uh, my shoes were worn out. I didn't have a change of pants. And I'd been uh, renting a room out of somebody's house for probably about two years and just wasn't going anywhere. So the Air Force really, uh, really saved my life in a lot of ways. So but you were enlisted, though. Yep. Yeah, the Air Force doesn't have a lot of use for sociology degrees. <laughs> that's a, well, no, that's a, it's a good point. So I joined up late enough that I had a bunch of buddies that either uh, joined up right out of high school or didn't make it all the way through college, and they were all starting to get out, right? I was in my late 20s, and they all told me the same thing. They said that I'd be happier going into the Air Force enlisted, picking my job, and if I liked it to go green to gold at that point, than I would going officer in the Army or Navy and letting them pick my job for me. And I'm not, uh, I'm not coordinated enough to be a Marine. I, there's a reason why I, I hung out in the back with the gear, man. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and there's, uh, there's definitely place for everyone. It's, uh, you know, they say the Air Force is obviously much more technical oriented um, and, uh, and there's support needed all over the place. Uh, but you, you did some time overseas. You were stationed in, uh, in England. Yeah, I was stationed in England and Korea. Um, I think of the two, my favorite uh, was England. I can't say much about the work, obviously, but uh, the one job I can speak to is uh, we did search and rescue support. And I think of all my career, that was uh, some of the most tangible. On top of that, it was a it was joint command. So I got to work with Marines, soldiers, and sailors. I uh, even had a coastie on deck. And uh, I liked getting the bigger picture view. I liked seeing the other traditions. I liked getting out of the Air Force bubble a little bit and seeing how the work really gets done. I think for Air Force Intel, we get pretty disconnected sometimes. So doing the joint operations was a lot. Um, not a lot to me. 
So how do you think your military background has impacted you as a professional counselor, as a mental health professional? Well, I think um, a few ways. So I joined up, like I said, I joined up pretty late for enlisted, right? Um, I got in three months before I would have needed a waiver. And before I joined, I kind of knew that I might end up doing the military. So I did a 20-page research paper on how basic training breaks you down and builds you up, right? Everything those drill instructors do is all coordinated, is all planned to provide the stress required to make sure you know you can handle what you need to in the military. That's where it all starts. And so when I came in, I had my eyes already open to that and what the military does to us and what we have to accommodate for that, why it's called a uniform, why we all at a certain point feel a connection to wearing it and the others next to us. And I think of everything that's gone on, when I got out, I'm a big white guy, man. I, uh, I've always been into social justice. Uh, even back during my undergrad, I got uh, some ally, allyship awards from the GLBT, uh, from the students of color. And every time it wasn't my fight. I could show up, I could have people's back, but at the end of the day, I couldn't lead that charge. Right. By serving, no one can tell me I'm not a veteran. Mm. No one can tell me this isn't my community and that it doesn't need my help. And uh, that's been really impactful for my work. Now I can get up, I can be loud, I can get the word out, and no one, no one gets to stop me. You know, and I think that's uh, that's really interesting uh, that you were able to to kind of see that uh, kind of come through. Did you find that your research made it easier for you in basic training? Because apparently, I must have just did it all wrong. Because you know, I thought they were going to be big teddy bears. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, so it was funny, right? The Air Force, I think, pulls a little bit more bachelor level folks for enlisted. So there were two other guys that had their bachelors in with basic with me. And, uh, you know, one of them thought they were smarter than the TIs, that he was going to talk down to all these folks because he was somehow more educated than people that had been doing a job for eight years. And I watched him have a miserable experience, right? Within a week, it was clear this guy was just going to be miserable through his whole career, his whole training. And it let me make an active choice that I was going to be uniform, that I was going to delve in, lean into the training, and be who I needed to be to serve. Um, so I think the only thing that really changed was that I knew what was happening and why and leaned in. And, and I think that uh, that level of awareness can, can really help out. So you then uh, you get out and you had sort of that um, – uh, lost place, you know, wandering in the desert that, that many <laughs> veterans do. Uh, then you found yourself uh, in grad school um, mm -hmm. as a civilian, essentially. Um, how was that experience for you? So that was interesting. Uh, um, the way that UC Denver's program works and part of why I picked it is it's all about cultural identity as a main theme of the program that they figured out through the 80s and 90s that when you have a bunch of uh, white women and men doing therapy for everybody without any education in other cultures, people uh, that are minorities don't show back up to therapy, they don't continue it. It's not very successful when dealing with people who don't identify as heterosexual. And then um, I kind of learned pretty quick 
that we as a culture, the veteran culture, really doesn't like the mental health community. Absolutely. Um, and that let me build up a frame. One, it let me address the idea of being kind of a privileged majority in a minority field. And what I mean by that is anywhere else I go, right, I'm a six foot two educated middle class white guy, right? According to everything on paper, I should be running the country, right? There, there's nothing in my way. Uh, we, you and I work in a field that is primarily dominated by women. True. So it's been tricky for me through my education to learn when to shut up. I'm used to walking into a room, I open my mouth, even if I don't know what I'm talking about, and people be quiet and listen, regardless of whether I'm an authority on it, right? And so that was a valuable lesson, and it certainly made my clinical work a lot better, right? And I don't got to tell you, if you're talking more than 10% of your session with your client, you're kind of messing up. They're not really doing the work. No, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so that was an important lesson. And then the other thing I realized was that all of these people that I was in my program with, it's a very vetted program, it's competitive. Only about uh, one in five of the people that apply an interview uh, gets accepted. So these are sharp, brilliant people that do really well on paper. And they were having the same problems talking to me or any of my veteran folks that I would have um, otherwise, right? Mental health comes up and they just want to talk or they want to say, oh, thank you so much for your service. I could never do what you did. Right. Right. All those things. The focus on you. Yeah. Right. And so that gave me something to offer and kind of pay back their patience. So, but what about school? Because you, you, you went to your bachelor's before the military and, and then you went to college after the military. Was it difference? Oh, it was huge. Um, I've got a pretty substantial reading disability, actually. Um, so going from an undergrad in sociology, which at the time I thought was really cool, but it turns out sociology is just a painfully easy major. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't figure that out until my uh, senior year of college, and I looked around, and half of the undefeated Utah Utes football team was in my classes with me. Uh, all of a sudden, I was having to read 400 pages a week and trying to figure out how to do that. And all of a sudden, I was having to write, I mean, what was it? Probably 100 pages of academic writing a semester mm. at a very high level. And I knew I needed resources for that. And luckily, uh, CU Denver had them. Uh, they had a really good veteran center that was well-connected. They had a good writing center. And uh, I had some vet buddies that were out trying to be writers to do some editing for me for beer. So... That helped too. That's uh, that is always uh, it, never underestimate uh, gig economy, uh, especially when there's, <laughs> when there's beer involved. So, sure. so while you were in graduate school, and I think this is um, one of the things how we first got connected um, was was you and uh, the work you were doing with the the veteran center there in um, uh, in UC Denver with the Pave program, right? That's right. So CU Denver back in uh, the early 2010s was pretty groundbreaking from Colorado. A guy named Cranman Cook came in and bullied and marined his way through all the red tape and got funding and built out a veteran center on CU. And then two years later, I show up on the scene and Cameron's leaving because when you do that good of a job, you get offered a national job, right? You know how that goes. 
so he was leaving and they had started to develop out a peer mentorship program. And it wasn't really so much a program as having two people that were really gregarious and friendly waiting for somebody to walk through the door and helping them if they needed it. Right. Right. And the two people that were doing it were awesome. They, they probably talked to 30 people through the semester, got them out for coffee, got them out uh, to whatever they needed. But they weren't writing anything down, they weren't collecting any data, and they didn't really have any support. And one of them graduated, and they didn't know how he did his job. Hmm. So I was talking to the new director, and uh, you know, here I am in grad school thinking I've got some chops. And I, we get to talk about it, and I'm like, yeah, we know that peer mentorship is one of the key components to academic success by the research. Um, basically, what they figured out before veterans ever started doing it was the further you are away from a white middle-class educated kid in college the harder college is for you right because the whole traditional college experience is designed around that so California started collecting some data on what happened to uh, first-generation college students that were Latino that got paired with a junior in college that identified like they did to help them you know figure out which professors really were being kind of crap to them how to figure out the social norms and rules that they need, how to you know sit down and take critique when they need it, and how to stand up for themselves when they needed it, all by someone who had gone through it before. And what they found is a 0.5 increase in GPA and a lot more completion. And so we kind of knew all that going in, and I, this was at the beginning of the summer, me and Patrick uh, Brown, the director, sit down and have a conversation. I'm like, all right, man, I'll be back in two months. I'm gonna write up a program. And two months later, I show back up, and I've got my, uh, you know, I joke about it being what I wrote in crayon and a notebook, showed up with like, uh, you know, five handwritten pages of how we can do the program and, and what it's going to look like. In that time, Patrick had gone to a national conference and ran into Brittany Risk over at the University of Michigan, and she was piloting the PAVE program. Michigan had done this great program where uh, these three PhDs collected some research from the university, developed out a program, found a director of veteran services there, and were having some success and were noticing some trends and wanted to see if it was going around the country. So we got picked up as one of their pilot schools. Uh, so I'm a little sad that my little crayon drawing didn't make it. But <laughs> I, was, I was actually expecting you to say, and my program was exactly that, and I came up with it on my own. But no, it's still sitting in the closet somewhere. <laughs> You still got in the trunk uh, or something? No, I think I just, uh, I think I burned it. You know, my, I didn't want my tears to get out that I uh, that I wasn't as cool as these three PhDs, two of which had worked with the VA for like eight years. Um, but that's but, all right. It's, what, it's audacity. That's right. That's right. So what ended up going on with that was we had a very successful program at CU because we already had a pretty good infrastructure in place. We had a space, we had work-study funding through the VA, we had uh, a grant or two that we could pull funding from, and uh, we got really lucky when we first started up. We had some really dedicated people, right? Um, when you get out, you miss that camaraderie, you miss uh, being connected to others, and the biggest thing with the military that I recall was that to be successful and have your past smoothed for you, you wanted a mentor. Right. Now, not everybody got one, right? And that happens, but in every branch and everyone I've spoken to, mentorship is key. And this 
this was a big selling point to get people involved. And so over the course of three years, I took the program from me and two really kind people to a permanent staff member that's overseeing the program, my replacement, and 15 grant-funded people providing mentorship for every single veteran that walks through the doors at CU. And we got a lot of really good data in that time. Uh, basically, the, what PAVE does is it gives you an outline and gives your training on how to get people going, but then it asks you to do reporting. And they've got a really good system to ensure everybody's privacy is protected, but they get to start tracking what student veterans are struggling with, where are they landing on it, and what's going on with it, excuse me. And what they found was student veterans have the same problems that other folks do. We want to be successful in college. We want to learn how to study. We want to figure out what we want to do with our lives. We want to be a professional at some point. Maybe not what we were doing, maybe it was, but we have a lot of the same struggles that other people coming back to college in their 20s do. We have some new, unique challenges, right? Everybody assumes with the GI Bill means there's no financial hardship, which I don't got to tell you in Colorado that GI Bill payment does not pay your rent. doesn't go very far, yeah. Um, and so we figured out systems and grants, and uh, then I got the opportunity when they took it from the original 10 schools and blew it up to 32 to go and help them train the next set. Uh, and they collected data from me and the other folks that were piloting it. Now that program is running at community college and online colleges and other traditional universities. And it's the only peer program sponsored by the VA in its history. So you weren't doing clinical work while you were um, involved in the PAVE program, but you were looking at veterans um, from, from sort of a, a mental health perspective? From, from yeah, so what, lens, yeah. Mm -hmm. so what I ended up doing was, it was actually a really odd time for me, right? Because here I am studying mental health, studying counseling, even at a uh, point starting my practicum and internship, right? Where we are practicing at that point. Um, and essentially the way it would go is I oversaw the mentors, right? Who were paired with their folks and they would escalate to me when someone was in crisis. And then... It, at that point, I'm just a resource coordinator. There were a few mistakes early on where I tried to play counselor running that program, right? Where uh, we had some folks that were suicidal. We had some folks uh, that ended up needing to go in treatment, in treatment for uh, addiction, right? We had folks that um, were having housing crisis and living out of their cars. And very quickly, uh, probably within the first six months, what I figured out was Colorado has one of the most robust networks of veteran resources in the country. Right. It was my job to know where those resources were and get those people connected to them. And through that, I got to meet a lot of really powerful, impactful mental health providers. And that's probably where I really started to learn what the distinction was between advocacy, resourcing, and being a therapist is. And, and that's really helpful, too. I mean, especially now in our, you know, as, as we're practicing, uh, mental health doesn't happen in a vacuum and, and we still need to be able to connect to resources, um, but where we're doing clinical work. But did you see some common struggles when it came to veteran mental health in uh, the, the college, uh, maybe even the transition or in the college environment? Yeah, so I think uh, first and foremost, there was just a lot of entitlement. 
you know, when you're in the military at four years, uh, most of us make it to some kind of leadership position, right? Even if it's a squad leader or whatever, but we were respected professionals. We were people who held down millions of dollars equipment. If we weren't perfect, people could die and people often did when even when we were, right? Right. We had a lot of responsibility. And here you are, you're, you know, in your mid-20s somewhere. You're sitting next to a 19-year-old who's now your new peer. And that 19-year-old is probably even better at college than you are, right? They're just coming out of high school. They maybe know how to do a research paper. They're already warmed up, yeah. Right, and you are coming in cold. And it's um, it's a hit. It's a, it's a huge hit on the ego. Here I go from being a respected professional in a field to being the new guy and having to deal with uh, some of the biases that come from people who haven't served, right? Oh, did you just join the military because you couldn't afford college? Oh, wow, what was it like to kill somebody? Right, all right. those wonderful questions we all love so much. Um, that was a huge transition point. And we also have, with the college students, they have all the same problems that the rest of us do, right? Uh, a lot of them show up on college campus with no idea what they want to do or what they're going to do with their life, right? It's not like the military leaves you a lot of time to think about the existential struggles of life. Right. All they know when they get out is either that they can't or don't want to serve in uniform anymore. It takes about six months for most of us, six months to a year, I'd say, from what I saw, to figure out what I want to keep from my military experience and what kind of civilian I want to be. And that's hard. It's incredibly hard, especially when you consider that through the entirety of our time in the military, we made no choices. We made choices on how to react, but we go where we're sent to go. We do what we're ordered. We do the job as directed. We don't choose where we live. We don't even really get to choose who we spend time with, right? When you're deployed or overseas, you're with your crew. Now, all of a sudden, I'm back in the civilian world, and I, I've got to choose my friends. I got to catch up or not with the people that I left behind when I started serving. And I can imagine, and and I see it with veterans that I work with, that there is a lot of um, isolation amongst veterans, meaning that that uh, they will just uh, uh, congregate uh, with other veterans. I only want to hang around other veterans. I only want to interact with other veterans, and 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 really just kind of uh, end up in an echo chamber talking about the good old days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's especially true for our combat vets. Um, there's a, a real bond and camaraderie there that, you know, I'm never going to understand intrinsically, right? I never served downrange. I never uh, had somebody's life directly in my hand, and I never had mine in somebody else's hands. And so that shared experience can sometimes make it hard to connect with others. On the other end of that, though, about half of the veterans that showed up on campus only walked into our office to secure their benefits and then we never saw them again hmm. where it's almost like the uh, reverse isolation right hey uh, my service meant what it meant to me i'm not serving anymore i don't want to be that veteran in the beard with the vet gear on in class talking about the good old days i want to be a businessman i want to be an entrepreneur i want to be a medical professional i want to be that and i'm going to run from it so hard that I'm not going to engage in the resources that are there for me. 
Wow. So that's a, so basically denying the veteran identity um, altogether almost. Yeah. Uh, or at least not engaging with it um, kind of shotgun approach, right? I think all of those folks probably have uh, friends that they served with, people that they care about. Uh, a few of them that I've caught up with and brought into services later say, no, I still talk to guys from my unit, but I'm not in my unit anymore. Right. And to be honest, the, you know, the Republican veteran identity that I see so hounded upon really bothers me. That's not my experience when I served. There were a lot of things that happened during my service that I don't agree with. And so I don't want to get put painted with that brush. So I remember one time that you and I were talking that the, you, you see a shift sometimes in that vitality. You just mentioned that it takes six months to a year to kind of uh, figure out what the new veteran identity is as opposed to the service member identity uh, or things like that. But uh, you talked about you saw how that shifted over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of my, my favorite things after three years of doing it is you could always tell when someone had kind of landed. So a lot of the guys that show up in the office, they haven't shaved in however long, they haven't gotten their hair cut, not like they're growing their hair out, just like they haven't cut their hair, right? Uh, they're wearing kind of whatever uh, clothes they found. And then all of a sudden, at some point, they show up and they've decided on a look. And it doesn't matter if they keep the beard and it's just neatened up or they get a haircut or whatever, but something in them shifted or all of a sudden they've picked something that they want to present to the world, right? They get that haircut, they shave, they trim their beard or whatever. And that was usually my cue that that person's kind of landing, right? They're kind of shaking it off. They're, they've got something that they want to go do. And then usually within three months of that, I wouldn't see them in the veterans office anymore. Hmm. They'd be off hanging out in the business school. They'd be off hanging out in the engineering college. They'd be off with their new peers that they've met and respected to go help them get to the next point in their career. And I thought it, it always was really handy to see. It was like having a visual cue that they're going to be okay. <laughs> right. And I, and I think that's a, that's a good thing is to be able to, to know. I mean, even for veterans that, that may be listening to this, that, uh, you know, hey, where am I at in that journey? Have I decided, um, you know, what I'm going to present to the world? Because we do have that control over what we present to the world. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I noticed too is if you are going to be a loud vet who owns that identity and really just lives in that community, right? Like arguably you and me. Right. Right. Yeah. We made a career out of being part of this community. That's great in college to stay connected with that uh, veteran student office. That's great in college to stick it out with that veteran student org and be that leader there. If your plan is to go into business, if your plan is to go into engineering and you really aren't going to be part of that community, I hope you show up to some of the events. But as a provider in that space, I really hope that you know it's more important for you to be with your new peers, to be with the people that you're going to be building a different community with. And yeah, you know, I hope that they come around for the burger burns and things like that at the end of the spring. I hope they're joined up with a, a VFW and they show up to a few meetings every now and then. But I think you're wasting your college experience if you're not connecting with other people that do what you want to do. 
You know, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I often tell veterans I work with is that, uh, you know, I, I'm around veterans all day. You know, you've been to my office. It looks like, a, you know, a, a retired first sergeant's <laughs> office, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, I, I still very much am in the veteran space, as you said, uh, as you are. But then we're choosing that as our professional identity um, because we have the capability to provide that support. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love the guys I hang out with and the gals I hang out with that do what we do. Uh, I've never met more passionate, dedicated people. And that can end up being a bit of a cult of personality, right? It ends up being really safe. If you're a veteran and you're just getting out and you show up and people are excited to see you, right? It feels a little bit like when you showed up to a good unit. You know, people are like, hey, welcome. Here's where we're going to be. Here's what you're going to be doing. What do you need to know around town? Is your family settled? Right? We do all that. And it's fantastic. And I think sometimes we make it just a little too comfortable. Right. We can stagnate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's something interesting. And, you know, you and I, we've talked about this. We have a lot of colleagues in the, the mental health profession uh, that, that they want to help veterans, um, mm-hmm. but maybe they're, they're not as familiar with uh, – you were talking about earlier it is a different culture by every definition of a culture um it is a separate um cultural entity Uh, what are your thoughts about those mental health professionals who are not veterans providing support for veterans i think a lot of them are better at it than you and i are depending on what they're looking at so if let's see if the members listening to this podcast are looking for mental health help, they should find a specialist, right? If you're going to go to a clinician, find a clinician that does what you want help in. It doesn't need to be a veteran. It doesn't need to be somebody who even has familiarity with the military experience. It helps. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to couples counseling with my wife, who I met after my service, because we're having some communication problems, that counselor having served me part of the culture doesn't really matter. Now, that said, what the clinicians can do on the other side is just get a little information and education so they don't trip on anything with us. So what they figured out when the VA opened its doors to all those other providers, they figured out that 84% of them were not competent to treat veterans, that there were people that are just like, you know what? I want to help vets and I support our country, so I'm going to jump in. You know, I'm a, I'm a good career counselor. I'm going to jump on that boat. And the VA pays pretty well, so great. I got on a panel. What they figured out was a large portion of them weren't trauma-informed. So if a veteran came in with a story with something that hurt them, that counselor would cry right? or wouldn't be able to hold or contain what the veteran was talking about. The next biggest piece was that they weren't using data-proven methods, right? They weren't using something that somebody actually did research on to make sure it works. And I think that's, to be honest, I think it's a problem across the whole field. I don't just feel like that's for veterans. I mean, you know, we've met, I think the two of us have chatted about a few therapists. We know that we really don't understand what they do in the room. Right, no, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a problem. And then the last one, and this is the one where I, I feel like you and I really bring the most to the table, is that cultural component. Right. For me to serve a gay military member, 
being a hetero guy, it was important for me to take the time to get some education on what it means to be gay in America, right? Right. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily do a bunch of work with that client on their gender identity, on their sexuality. If they're coming to me, they're probably coming because they want to figure out how to transition into civilian life. They want to figure out how to um, be a better man, right? That's my bag. That's what I get into. That's why people show up at my door. But that education makes sure that I have important pieces without having to make that client educate me on their life about it. And I think that's where you and I do in the presentations at the state conferences, making ourselves available to consult with is huge. On the other end of that, we really need our vets to show up. To show up to counsel, we can to show up to, yeah. to services. Like, absolutely, right? Uh, we know that the VA, for all of its foibles and everything, they're doing, it's a lot of good people doing what they can in an overflooded system. The VA cannot meet our community's needs. And they acknowledge that. I mean, many of the providers that I'm, uh, you know, in contact with, uh, they know that. Yeah. So we need to let, as a community, we need to go to other people. If you're having a problem uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Like you just have to wash your hands three times a day, right? The kind of normal stuff there. You don't need a veterans therapist. You need somebody who specializes in OCD. And don't get me wrong, like a good therapist is going to help you at a certain level, but you're going to get better help by going to a specialist. Yeah, so I mean, and, and I like uh, what you're saying there that it, the, it's incumbent upon the veteran, you know, if, if we just stand there and say, well, I'm only going to go see a therapist who is a veteran, and if they're not a veteran, then I'm not going to go see them. Well, they're hurting themselves more than, than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And they're really... <laughs> I've had the opportunity for every bad therapist I've met, I've met three incredibly passionate, competent people that do what they do and are, and are passionate about it. They're out there. Now the problem, and I think this is what I noticed too, while I was in uh, my program and working at the Veterans Center, I had the opportunity to work with a group trying to collect data on protective factors against suicide for veterans, right? Right. We know uh, we lose more veterans than others. We know why. We know what the risk factors are. But not a lot of people are talking about what keeps them alive. People who have been in uniform, who struggle with suicide, what kept them alive? What got them through that dark point and got them out on the other side to an effective life? And I got to sit on a panel and basically facilitate a discussion between 10 to 15 mental health professionals all of whom had at least 15 years of experience serving the veteran community. And the consistent thing that I heard is it's three pieces, right? There's no magic bullet. Family is going to be a key for some people. Making sure that they're reconnected with all the people that they missed while they serve, making sure that they're establishing new and healthy connections with the people that matter them is going to be huge. Peer support right? Having a community that you can join, whether it's the veteran community or a church, uh, a job, a profession, something that you feel part of and that you have people you care about in. 
And then the third one is you and me, the, the mental health component, getting together with solid providers. And where finding solid providers gets difficult at, just like any other resource, no one gets to see one of my clients and know that it was my client. We're not carpenters, right? If I was a carpenter and somebody was looking for a recommendation on a deck, I could walk around a neighborhood and say, hey, that's good work. I know what that looks like. That looks like a good job. You should find out who did that and hire them. Our whole profession is based off of relationships and reputation. All we're able to do is educate and find each other and maybe talk to a few clients that we recommended go there. No, it's hard. It, it does. I mean, that's uh, that's actually one of the challenges. Uh, as in, and again, you and I have talked about this: is how do we get the word out that we have an inherently private and even ethically confidential um, uh, profession? You know, everything that goes on behind the closed door, as scary or as easy as some might think, it stays behind the closed door, and so it's very hard to promote successes. Um, whenever you ethically and and even personally um, won't reveal those successes. I think um, where I learned to kind of uh, get some meat for that was through the PAVE programming. Right, Every single vet that came through and utilized resources, I knew about. That was my job. It was my job to coordinate the folks that were having a hard time. And then when it came time for funding and to get more grants, I had to figure out a way to tell people with money that their money would go to good use. And that's where getting metadata happens, right? That's when I could say, we helped 25 people with struggles with suicide. We connected 50 people this semester with tutoring resources and we saw them complete courses that they were on track to fail. And I think that's where the mental health community needs to get better at one, tracking our clients, right? Collecting right. our own data and then sharing that data. Yeah. Cause right? uh, and, and that's, uh, again, some, a lot of the challenge in, in when I, you know, speak to, um, reporters or, and they're always, well, well, we'd like to talk to one of your clients. We'd have one of your clients to, uh, to tell us their story and how great it is. Um, ethically we can't do that. That's a, it's a great way um, as far as the aggregate data, uh, to be able to present this, you know, it's and, and I usually tell them that I said ethically, I'm not going to tell you who my clients are. Uh, however, this is how many veterans that we have supported over the last year and things like that. And, and here is the uh, de-identified data um, that can back it up. Now, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think the other thing that uh, that's helped me uh, reach other people and certainly reach my own clients is not having shame about getting my own help, right? I don't, I don't trust a therapist who hasn't done their own work and put away their own demons before they go into a room with somebody, mm -hmm. right? So any decent therapist has been in therapy at some point. And that means most of us have stories about horrible therapists. I remember the first time I tried, my therapist yelled at me and almost got punched in the face. <laughs> That's uh, and. <laughs> And and a lot of veterans would uh, would stop there and and just say you know right. chuck it just uh, just like we uh, we would stop at a, a bad mechanic or a, a bad realtor if we're looking to buy a house or something, uh, but the problem well, would never get solved. Difference. Yeah, I think that's the difference, right? We find a different mechanic, we find a different realtor. Uh, luckily for me, I was in a mental health program, and that was part of the program was to go and put away my demons, right? 
So yeah, it took me two more therapists before I found one that I really connected with, that had an approach that was different than I worked on things, that taught me the skills I needed. Uh, and we did good work. And then later on in my life, when I was making that transition out of college and into the professional world, that's a hard transition. Those are the points that most folks need some extra help, right? When their life changes, that's when skills you've had aren't working and that's when relationships start to get strained. So sure enough, I went back to therapy and I got lucky that time. The first therapist I walked into was able to do the work with me. And uh, I wish more of us would be candid with that. No, I, I think that's a good point. I was talking to someone earlier today about how um, about how sometimes we want to mystify our um, our profession. You know, we want to be seen as uh, wizards or shamans or something like that. Somehow, and not speaking ill about uh, our our colleagues, but um, just to be able to say, well, this is where you can go um, to be able to get the secret wisdom, um, where where it's it's not really like that. You know, we can. Um, by by telling people what we do doesn't mean that we make ourselves uh, less relevant. It could mean that we're more relevant. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's actually been one of the more fun parts of doing the trainings for these other clinicians. So now I, I get out and I, I do cultural trainings for clinicians, right? Um, and it feels a little presumptuous sometimes, right? I've only been in the field for like a year and here I am training 15 or 20 year clinicians on our stuff. And uh, one of the things that comes up when I start the exercise, I get up and I draw a box on a board and I say, okay, you're a therapist, you're a mental health provider. What are pe things people assume about you when you tell them what you do? And the first one that almost always pops up is mind reader, hmm. right? Like, oh, are you, are you therapizing me right now at a dinner party? Like, <laughs> what am I oh, we're, we're, what am I thinking? What are you? Are you analyzing my family right now? How bad is it? Right? <laughs> um, just like with the veteran community where I think most of us have unfortunately been asked that question of, you know, have you killed somebody? I've been asked that and I've never been in combat, right? Uh, and it's a horrible question to be asked. All these assumptions that people have go away. A good therapist, you get in the room with them, you're going to them because they have some skills that you want. But at the end of the day, it's their job to have enough different skills that it's going to work with your life. And they can't provide you anything until they know about you. Right. If it was that easy, everybody would just read a self-help book and be done. Well, I mean, that's what uh, maybe that's what a lot of people try to do anyway. But no, I, I, I exactly. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. That's uh, that's definitely uh, an important aspect um, of of when veterans are looking to seek mental health. Mm -hmm. So, in in coming up on the end of the hour here, but I wanted to besides some of the access uh, that you were talking about, what are some of the other barriers that you see with uh, with veterans in seeking mental health? Shame. Um, the most at risk population for suicide, it turns out, are non combat deployed Marines. Uh, half of the people we lose to suicide never served in combat. And the consistent feedback I got from people struggling after they get out is that I don't need care. I know people worse than me. And I, I was no different, right? I've, I've got a 40% disability rating, right? Chasing kids around a track at 28 all the way through my 30s was not the best thing on my knees and shoulder, right? It's a ridiculous injury to have. 
and go get cared for compared to what other people are coming home with. It took me a year and two friends diving into my rear because I needed care. I needed to get rehabbed. I didn't feel, knowing what I know and doing what I do, I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to go take resources that somebody else can use. And just like you and I were talking about before the interview, the resources are there. We're waiting on you, right? You just got to show up. We as a culture don't want to take something from anybody else. Our greatest heroes, our Medal of Honor winners, what do they all say? I just did what any of the guys next to me would have done. Right. And if our greatest, bravest Americans are saying that, if I was an admin, and yeah, you know, I did my job and I served with honor, but I get out and, you know, I go home and things aren't the same. I can't relate to the friends that I had. I don't know what I want to do. And I'm just, I'm sitting in that funk and I don't know what to do. How does that person justify going to get help when you know there's a backlog at the VA? It's all over the news. Shame. I don't deserve the care. Somebody else needs it more than me. And it's it's something we tell ourselves. It's it's part of what makes our culture great. It's part of what being a veteran means is that service that like I can come second to something else. Yeah, convincing no, that's a- people. Yeah, absolutely. The the selflessness that that sacrificial, um, you know, my shield covers my brother, um, all the way up until the point where uh, my shield arm is broken. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's in in and I agree. I, I think I see a lot of that. You know, I have veterans. Oh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm sure that you have somebody else who who needs to be here. So no, no, this is your hour right now. This is you. This is this is exactly what's going on. Oh, that's great. Yeah, is, and, no, go ahead. Well, and I think the other thing is, and what I consistently noticed during that protective factors thing and through my job being a resource for folks is if a combat veteran walked into my office and needed something, I could get them care within a day. I had no problem resourcing combat vets. If somebody that didn't have military sexual trauma and wasn't a combat vet came into my office, I had incredibly limited resources for them. The combat veteran support is necessary. Our combat vets certainly put it on the line and deserve everything they have. We need to, as a culture, accept that serving in the military and getting out of the military is pivotal, hard, and deserving of help. Because the combat veterans I worked with didn't suffer most of the time from their combat experience. They suffered from the same things that everybody else did getting out of that uniform. Exactly, and that's what uh, a lot of the, and even a past couple conversations uh, that I've had, uh, where it's it's not the trauma, it's not the military experiences that are bothering them, it's the, the lingering mindset that they haven't made that transition, as you, you were talking about earlier. Uh, they haven't landed, so to speak. They're still maybe caught in an updraft or something. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I see a lot of that, too. Well, this has been great, man. This is, uh, and, and actually... Um, you're going to have to come back on because we didn't even talk about the other stuff. Uh, uh, oh yeah, this, yeah. This is a this is a teaser, folks. Is uh, Tim Tim also works with uh, with first responders with firefighters? Uh, give me that uh, that number you were talking about, the uh, Aurora firefighters. So Aurora Fire is one of the bigger departments in Colorado, and one in four of their firefighters are veterans. 
Um, I don't think it's going to surprise folks that once you've served in a uniform and done something meaningful that you want to keep doing that. Yeah, so 25%, at least in, in Tim's experience, of firefighters, and, and I know that I mentioned I have a, a couple of uh, former firefighters and cops uh, in, my, uh, in my platoon, um, the guys that are out, and the intersection between veteran mental health, first responder mental health, uh, and, uh, and and just providing service. So we're going to have to come back on and do another show uh, about that specifically. So if you guys like this one, you know, we'll make sure that, uh, that we bring Tim back on. We're going to bring Tim back on whether you like it or not because I think it's a pretty cool topic. <laughs> so, uh, Tim, how about before we go, uh, let everybody know how they can find you, contact you, social media, website, whatever you'd like. Sounds good. So um, I have a therapy practice out in Golden, Colorado. It's out west. And I'm looking to get in a second location downtown. The easiest way to find me and learn about what I've got going on is going to my website, which is www.empoweredchangece.com. That's Echo Charlie. It stands for Empowered Change Counseling and Education. Sounds good, folks. So if, uh, if you want to check out the stuff that Tim is doing, if you're a provider, uh, and we're going to have a lot of providers uh, listen to this show. And you want to hear a little bit about what Tim's doing as far as the, uh, the cultural training and things like that. Uh, definitely check out his website, and, uh, and it's absolutely a resource. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show, Tim. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. I'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, for joining us for yet another episode of Headspace and Timing. We'll catch you next week. Hey, everybody. Hope you really enjoyed that episode with uh, Tim Weinicke. Uh, as we mentioned in the show, um, there's uh, very few mental health professionals who are also veterans, but we are out there, uh, like myself, like Tim, like a lot of the other guests here. Uh, so there are mental health professionals that understand what it is that you're doing, uh, the military service, and, and sort of the, the sacrifice that we give. So uh, if you're interested in hearing more about what Tim is doing, Tim's going to be facilitating a support group for transitioning veterans, and this is going to be available online, because technology is amazing, uh, via support circles available through iTunes. The groups will be starting in November of 2017, and they'll cost $25 per person. Uh, It's a great opportunity for veterans around the country to have access to peers and confidential guidance by a professional anywhere that they have access to the phone. So uh, we'll try to get those, uh, those links in the show notes and uh, just look for support circles in iTunes and uh, be on the lookout for Tim Weineke's programs. Thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us and we look forward to talking to you next week. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.